the second of the three times that we get to be together. Last night, I introduced the themes uh, that Christian Missions in Many Lands is following uh, in, in emphasizing this 100th year. They were to recall, to rekindle, and to educate, to equip, and then to illustrate, to inspire. And last night, in Recall to Rekindle, we talked together about some of the history of Brethren Missions from the United States and CMML's role and your role. It's an honor to be a part of a work that has such a great history and such a great heritage in, uh, in missions. And today, we're going to look in these sessions at the lives of two New Testament missionaries uh, trying to set some familiar stories against the backdrop of their time and place. And by educating, I trust that we can equip, and then we will see how they will inspire. So we're going to start our discussion here in Acts chapter 16 and with verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. May the Lord bless, giving us a good understanding of his word this afternoon. We measure history by landmark events, sometimes a beginning, sometimes a, a culmination or a transition of some important movement. Often uh, landmark uh, historical events occur according to some predetermined schedule. They're anticipated, they're expected, uh, they're prepared for, like the inauguration of the president last month, a, a date and time that was scripted by law. Sometimes they are scripted down to the second. Today is February the 20th. 59 years ago today, February 20, 1962, uh, I was six years old and I was in first grade. And my mother, Dolores, who many of you know, sent a note to my school that her son would not be coming to school that day. She was keeping me home so that I would watch and so that I can still remember seeing John Glenn go up in Friendship 7, about three hours north from where you are, 59 years ago today. Sometimes historical events happen with shock and surprise, like uh, 9-11, or like the terrible events of January 6th, just a month, just six weeks ago. And then sometimes great landmark historical events happen, and nobody even knows that they have. And it is only later, sometimes much later, that their impact is realized. It is with such an event that we're going to begin our discussion this afternoon. The text that we read from Acts chapter 16 is drawn from the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. The year is 50 AD or CE, as you prefer. It's about 20 years after Pentecost. Now, on his first missionary journey, Paul with Barnabas had was commended from the church in Antioch and he went out, first they went to the island of Cyprus and then up into the province of Galatia. It was an area that was relatively close to home. Paul's home city of Tarsus was in that general area. 
The places that they visited, Cyprus, Iconium, Derby, they're all closer to Antioch even than Jerusalem is. The gospel was wading out into the Hellenistic world, maybe like ankle deep. The culture of those places was still Eastern. The, there were uh, substantial Jewish populations. There were synagogues there in each of those places that had been functioning for centuries. And Paul would start there, and he would find a ready audience of persons knowledgeable in the scriptures. He'd be invited to speak at the synagogues. If you have any word for ex- of exhortation for the people, say on. These synagogues brought together Jews and Gentiles, men and women dissatisfied uh, with the pagan idols and the nonsense religions of their culture, who sought the true God of heaven and found him in the synagogues. You see this in Paul's address in the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, where he begins, men of Israel and you who fear God. You see there both, Jew and Gentile. We read there that the whole city gathered to hear him. And Paul and his company had moved quickly from city to city, sometimes because of persecution, sometimes just to keep moving. The whole first journey was a little more than one, but less than two years, and then they returned to Antioch. Now, the second missionary journey, again, set out from Antioch, and its target was the same places. Barnabas and John Mark would head to Cyprus, while Paul with Silas would go back to those cities of Galatia. The stated purpose of the journey was to go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. The initial purpose was limited. The initial destination was still close to home. And that purpose was accomplished by chapter 16, verse 5. Maybe it was time to return home to Antioch, where they could report mission accomplished. But then the Holy Spirit began to push them, began to push them westward, further and further and further westward, all the way to the port city of Troas. That's a long way from point A to point B. Calvin was talking about getting from point A to point B. They didn't know where point B was. And at Troas, the Spirit of God directly instructs Paul as to where to go next. And it is hard, in a few words, to explain just how important that moment is. But let me try it this way. I'm sorry how for how busy this slide looks. Uh, the day of Pentecost is recorded in Acts chapter 2. One, it's one of the most famous chapters in Scripture. When suddenly there came a sound from heaven and a rushing and mighty wind, and, a, and there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and all began to speak, with other tongues. And Luke says, there were then dwelling in Jerusalem, in for the feast, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They and each one of them heard heard the gospel in his and her own language. There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those belonging in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Perga and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya joining Cyrene and visitors from Rome and Jews and proselytes and Christians and Arabs. They all heard speaking in their own tongues the wonderful words of God. 
Now, the map that I have up illustrates that list from Acts chapter 2. It shows you where these Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, where they were all from. And that list is a pretty good indication of where there were substantial Jewish populations, which would mean for Paul's purposes, where there was a working knowledge of the scriptures, the law and the prophets, and where he could have a start with those who understand the purposes and the promises of God, and from which he could build a gospel message to reach people in the region. I want you to notice how prevalent was that traditional Jewish population in the regions Paul had been to. And I want you to notice how absent it is in Macedonia and Greece. Paul is now here. And this map shows in a glance what it would take a social scientist hours to explain. Behind him was a word for, was a world familiar. What lay across those waters was Macedonia, the stronghold of Greek culture, where Aristotle had tutored Alexander the Great, and in great, big, geopolitical, historical terms, what lay across those waters was the Western world. We still today consider the Dardanelles, the dividing line between East and West. Across those waters lay a different world. Behind Paul was a world of traditional religion. Across those waters was a world of science and technology. Behind him that was a world that valued the wisdom of the ages. Across those waters was a world of education and ever-changing social values, and a world of vigorous public debate and endless public theater. Behind Paul was a world that valued the ancient and established way. Ahead of him was a world that wanted everything new all the time. Luke wrote in Acts 17 that they spent their time in nothing else but to tell or, new, tell or say what was the newest new thing. Everybody had to have the newest version of something. Behind Paul was a world steeped in the old where generations waited their turn to continue the established way. Ahead was a world that celebrated being young, where the young generation pushed out the old, where the younger, stronger generation saw no reason to wait, when that runner who's going to get the baton had taken off long before the runner coming up behind him was there. Hey, Zeus, the king of the gods, got to be the king of the gods because he killed his father Cronus. Over those waters was a world that favored action over contemplation, science over mystery, youth over age, uh, logic over tradition, and commerce over everything. Across those waters was the Western world, the world we live in, you and me. To reach the people of that different world, Paul was going to have to do things a different way. He was going to have to stand in Athens and preach not from the words of Jewish prophets, but from Greek poets. 
He would have to abandon the synagogues for a new form of evangelism, one that would happen in the marketplace and the workplaces and homes. He was at, he would have to forge a new way of discipleship. He had been a Jew to the Jews. Now he's going to have to become a Greek to the Greeks. It would be as if 59 years ago on February 20, 1962, John Glenn orbited the earth three times and upon receiving instructions to return for splashdown, instead he pointed friendship seven towards the moon. I know that the physics don't work, but the imagery does. The history of the world knows very few events as important as the infusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ into Greek and Western culture. And it all began at that verse when Paul and his company stepped off that ship and into Neapolis. You and I, we are the recipients. We are the benefactors of that missionary journey and that missionary zeal. We know the gospel. And our society is molded by the gospel because a courageous church at Antioch sent out a courageous team of Christians who, working together, pushed into a culture different than their own and reached further than prudence thought that they should go. And so, likewise, our churches must be courageous, courageous as soldiers, courageous as athletes, as we've heard, and teams that are responsive to God's spirit, to reach into cultures unfamiliar that we would infuse the gospel message. It is not enough to shout the gospel through a megaphone. Hey, the megaphone of media and the internet, they're great tools. But it is necessary for us to do what Jesus did and to do what Paul did, to go where the people are, to live with people as they live in order to make disciples for Jesus Christ and not just win converts, but to make disciples. I respectfully submit that maybe the megaphone can win converts, but to make disciples requires a presence there. Some time ago at a CMML director's meeting, there developed an informal conversation over the question, what is the greatest need on the mission field today? Now, you know, there's an educate to a quick question. What is the greatest need on the missionary field today? Is the greatest need technology or communications or maybe more support from the uh, commending assemblies or more education here in the States? And one man ended the discussion by saying that the greatest need on the mission field today is for missionaries. It is for the people of character and drive and purpose who will go and carry the gospel. It is for churches that will send and support and do so actively and intentionally because, as we said last night, preaching the gospel in all nations is not the job of evangelists and it's not the job of commended workers. It is the job of the church. As Paul, and as Paul famously wrote in Romans, let me go back to that slide. As Paul famously wrote in Romans, how shall they believe in him of who they had not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? 
upon arriving in uh, Macedonia, Paul and his group moved quickly through the cities, as they had done in their practice before, sometimes pushed by persecution, sometimes just to keep moving through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. But then he came to Corinth. The year was 51 A.D. or C.E., as you prefer. And in Corinth, something happened that had never happened before. He stayed. He stayed there for 18 months. This is from Acts chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. He continued, and those of you who were with us last night, you'll remember the word. He continued there a year and six months, preaching the word of God among them. I'd like to talk to you for a while about Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and a wife who we meet here for the first time and who are, to me, among the most interesting people in the Bible. Christian missionaries have changed the world, and Aquila and Priscilla were those in the vanguard. We read here that they were Jews, and that at least Aquila had been born in Pontus. We read that they had recently, and note the word recently, come from Italy, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And we read that they were tent makers. Now, the Bible always rewards attention to detail. So let's consider the details of this story very carefully and learn their backstory. Tiberius Claudius Caesar, who we just read about, known to history as Claudius Caesar, referenced here in Acts 18, is the fourth Roman emperor. First emperor is Augustus. He was the emperor when Jesus was born. We all know that from Luke 2. They would add a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Second emperor is Tiberius. He was the emperor when Jesus was preaching, when when he was crucified. Tiberius is mentioned in Luke chapter 3. Third emperor was named Gaius, also called Caligula, who was insane and was assassinated in the fourth year of his reign, pretty much for the good of everybody else concerned. And on his death, his uncle Claudius became emperor, Claudius being chosen because he was the only member of the royal family who was still alive, Caligula and his paranoia having murdered just about all the rest. Claudius was an intelligent man. He was interested in architecture and history and law, but not at all in religion. His policy towards religion in the empire was, yeah, whatever you want. He was a public man, he did the public observances, but he had no faith and no interest in the supposed Roman pantheon of gods. He actually, he actually turned down the honor of becoming a god himself. The Roman Senate sent him word that they had voted him a god, and they set a date for his deification, and Claudius sent back word that that was nice, but that he was busy that day, he had other things to do, and I don't know, maybe you can make me a god some other time. 
Claudius had absolutely no patience for religious arguments, which he thought just caused fights and commotions, and they get in the way of orderly administration. And now there was a religious argument going on among the Jews in synagogues all over the empire, an argument between a conservative rabbinical Judaism that had existed in the Hellenistic world for more than two centuries and a new doctrine that was young, that was energetic, that was intellectually muscular, and above all, it was messianic. And this new doctrine insisted that the prophecies were more than just cultural landmarks, but that God's promises to Israel and to the world should be taken and understood in the most radical way possible. They were to be understood literally. And this new doctrine insisted that the things foretold were happening now and that they concerned one that they called the Christ. Now, as good students of the Bible, you can connect the dots. Those 3,000 that had been saved at Pentecost in Jerusalem from every nation in the empire, they had taken the message of the gospel back home with them, as Peter had told them to do. He said, the promise is to you and your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And in that day, the gospel of Jesus Christ became a seed on the wind, carried across the empire, and Claudius would have none of it. We could trace um, his response to the gospel through his letters and edicts, and I know how interested you'd all be, but just to get to the point, in A.D. 49, Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. He didn't care whose fault it was. He expelled all Jews from Rome for constant disturbances over this question of the Christ. Caught up in that expulsion were Aquila and Priscilla. Now, Aquila had been born in Pontus, which is a Roman province on the Black Sea. When Peter wrote his first letter to the pilgrims of the dispersion, he mentions Pontus, so there was a substantial Jewish population there. Aquila had come to Rome, maybe early in life, maybe later, and he had married, and he and Priscilla had heard the message of the Christ and believed. Now, exactly when we don't know, but you know, both Pontus and Rome are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. So it is distinctly possible that they were among the 3,000 that were saved in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Can't say for sure, but I like to think so. What we do know is that they were in Rome when Claudius issued his edict, and they left Italy not knowing that it was the start of a lifetime of adventure in the gospel. And now it's two years later, and we find them in Corinth making tents. Now that's not some coincidence. That's not just some happenstance. Corinth in A.D. 51 needed a lot of tent makers. I'm sure everybody here has heard of the Olympic Games and has heard, we already heard a talk a little bit about it, that they were heard, that they were held every four years and that the modern Olympic Games were inspired by the, by the games in ancient Greece at Mount Olympus. 
But the Greeks absolutely loved sports. They couldn't get enough of them. Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, was all about being young and beautiful and strong and virile. And there's nothing that celebrates youth and beauty and strength and virility more does sports. Steve talked a little bit about that in his good word. And there were other games like the Olympics, and they were in Ismithia, 15 miles outside of Corinth. And they were huge. They were held the year before and the year after the Olympics, every other year. And there were foot races and chariot races and gymnastics and wrestling and boxing and discus throwing. And there were also contests in uh, poetry and singing. Imagine that, singing as an Olympic sport. It was like the Super Bowl and the masked singer all rolled up into one. And every two years, people would pour into Corinth from all over Greece. And then this huge flood of people that came into Corinth would move out to the games, which would last for five days. Now, I have heard that there in Florida, you have some pretty big sports fans. And I have noticed that it has been a pretty big year for Florida sports. I mean, you've got the Tampa Bay Rays in the Super Bowl. You've got your Buccaneers winning the, uh, I'm sorry, the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series. The Buccaneers winning the Super Bowl. You got the Lightning winning the Stanley Cup. You got the Marlins and the Dolphins and the Heat in the NBA Finals. And you got the, and you got the Magic and the Panthers and you just ran the Daytona 500 and you got the PGA tournaments. You got 11 NCAA Division I college teams. So I know today I am talking to some really big sports fans. So let's suppose that you are a first century sports guy and you're going to the games. And I mean, you are gonna have a great time and you're gonna cheer the Corinthians and you're gonna boo the Athenians and you're gonna tailgate, you're gonna drink root beer with your friends. Uh, Let me ask you, where are you going to stay? It's a wide open rural seaside area. There are no holiday inns anywhere. You can't use your Hilton points or your Marriott points. Where are you going to stay out there for five days? You're going to need a tent. And are you going to carry your tent all the way down with you from Thessalonica? Are you going to lug your tent all the way up from Thebes? No, you're not. You're going to buy your tent, and you're going to buy your tent in Corinth. And so every two years, when the games were on, as they were in AD 51, there was a boom market for tent makers in Corinth, and probably that opportunity had drawn a man named Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. I suppose that here in Acts 18, is the first ever example of what we now call business as mission. It is one of the fastest growing and most productive style of missions in the world today because governments may not be willing to let let in Christian missionaries, but they're anxious to let in people with business skills. One of my closest friends 
Charles Taylor, who is now with the Lord, would often go to China on mission trips made possible by his expertise in the hospitality industry. And much of the assembly missions work in Latin America that moved through the gateway of the South Florida missionary class was built by businessmen and women. In fact, two generations ago, Steve, Steve talked about John Peaslin. Well, two generations ago, there was another John Peaslin who went to South America working for the Singer Sewing Company, using his business as a foundation for missions. And it was his son, Tom Peaslin, who was then a commended missionary to Mexico. And now Tom's son, John, who is the executive director of CMML. And so here are Aquila and Priscilla, business as mission, working in Corinth, working as tent makers, maybe trying to settle down, maybe there for just the immediate opportunity. And now there's a synagogue. Well, let me say there's a synagogue in Corinth where they would attend every Sabbath, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. And now there's a new voice in that synagogue, an outspoken advocate for the messianic Judaism that they also believed. His name is Paul. He's the apostle who's come down the cities of Macedonia and Achaia, and now he's joined by Silas and Timothy, preaching that Jesus is the Christ. In, Paul, in Luke's words, in Luke's narratives, he was compelled by the Spirit to proclaim Jesus Christ. Paul always worked for a living in whatever city he visited. He said to the Ephesians, these hands have provided for my necessities that I will not be a financial burden to any of you. And now Aquila and Priscilla have him stay at his house, and he's working with them, making tents. Imagine the conversations over dinner. And now Paul has left the synagogue, and probably they did too. And now the focus of evangelism and discipleship will move into the marketplace and move into the sporting arenas and move into the public square. The work will be centered in the home of Justice, a Roman who had sought the true God of heaven and found him in Jesus Christ. The year is 51 A.D., but it is a story as current as any of our missionary field, any of our missionaries on the field right now. It is a story that is as exciting as anybody who's thinking about going. It is a story of Christians drawn together by a radical faith, led by the Spirit of God, compelled by the Spirit to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, leaving the old behind, stretching forward to what's before, adopting a timeless message to a rapidly changing world and if in a different culture and finding opportunity to do so in every occasion. The year was A.D. 51, and Aquila and Priscilla, two tent makers who had left Rome with no idea of what was before them, well, they were about to help change the world. And so may we, you and me. We're going to take a break. I think we have a song then we have one session left together. 
will follow their story as we illustrate to inspire. Let's pray, and then I will give it back to those there. Our Father, thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercies to us every day. We pray again, Lord, for those who are on the field. We pray that you would open the door for them, for the gospel. We pray for their protection, and we pray for their commending assemblies, and for the assemblies that are represented in our conference today, that they would be strong, that they would be knit together in love, and they would, in in their neighborhood, and as far as the word would go, carry the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We give you our thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.